Hello and a very warm welcome to the State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. This is the last episode of season one and we're really excited to share with you today some of our findings from our annual State of the Nation report. It's been a busy few weeks beavering away and crunching data and on this episode we'll be sharing a sneak peek of the report before its official launch. We'll also be speaking to Sarah O'Grady, Social Affairs Editor at the Daily Express, to discuss her experiences of the issues behind the numbers. The report is based on data from a group of helpline organisations and this year the project is bigger than ever. Royal Memcap Society, Age UK, Carers UK, Independent Age, RNIB, Ealing Advice Service, Citizens Advice and Scope have all kindly shared their anonymised data with us. I would like to give a special thanks to Owen Bowden, who's the data specialist at MenCap, who has worked alongside our own Hannah Hewish to process the data through a bespoke pipeline in advance of this analysis. So for those of you listening to this podcast hot off the press, the report will soon be available via our website, accesscharity.org.uk. But I'm excited to be able to give you, our listeners, a preview. I'm delighted to be able to welcome my colleague, legal manager, Hannah Hewish, who will be able to tell us a lot more about the report. Hannah, hello. Hi. Hi, Carrie. So, Hannah, can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your role at Access Social Care? Sure. So I'm a legal manager at Access Social Care and I lead on data insight within the legal team itself. And since our launch in 2020, my role has really involved shining a light on social care advice trends and issues that people are facing who are either receiving social care or supporting people who are. And we do this in several ways. So we we gather data and report on social care data from our legal casework team. So that's cases that our team of lawyers are advising on through our membership of frontline care organisations and advice providers. And secondly, we also shine a light on these trends through the Helplines Data Collaboration Project. And it's this project that's really at the centre of our State of the Nation report. So how did the data project come about in the first place, Hannah? So it was piloted at the end of 2019 with the aim really of of deriving as a social care advice sector overall greater insight from our data through collective analysis. So many of us knew that we were seeing the same key trends and issues appearing year after year, but we knew this largely anecdotally and we couldn't demonstrate it collectively as a sector. So we thought that by pooling our anonymised data we could collectively enhance the insight and therefore really the power and potential impact of the work that we're all doing. Data is indeed power. Mm-hmm. So um, so this project has been described as being on the vanguard of data collaboration projects in the charitable sector. 
Can you tell us the mechanics of how you've been able to combine the data from a range of different organisations? One of our first and possibly greatest challenges as a group was looking at the way we all described social care issues. So we were all identifying similar themes, similar trends and issues in our own advice work. And this, this can be a range of things, you know, it might be a delay to a needs assessment or a cut to a care package. And all of those issues will have one standard legal framework that they sit within. But as an advice sector, we were not using standardised terminology. And for understandable reasons, we were all using terminology that really aligned with our own organisational focus. So in practical terms, it really meant that the data that we all had, you, you couldn't match it up. Um, you know, we were, we were describing the same issues, but we couldn't demonstrate that by simply adding together what we had. So one of the first challenges, I think, was really to look at, can we make this work? Can we harmonise the data that we all have? And is it possible to create a set of um, umbrella themes, if you like, universal themes that sit across all of our organisational codes in relation to social care queries that are coming through that will enable us to actually analyse as a group what we're seeing coming through? So we tried to do that initially by holding a half day workshop and this was just at the outset of the pandemic. So there was real power behind an online interactive whiteboard with some simple post-it notes. So we did a half day workshop with everybody's organizational code mapped already onto a set of suggested universal themes. And we spent the morning moving things around. Every organization sent a subject matter expert and a data specialist so that we could really understand the types of issues that people were seeing behind the codes. And by the end of the morning, we had a set of 14 universal themes, which harmonized the data that we had. So we knew that at the end of it, we could map everybody's data to this set of themes, and we could confidently say that they were all about those 14 key, key issues. And in collaboration with, with MenCap's data team, as you said at the beginning, Carrie, we created a bespoke data processing pipeline through which we could load everybody's data downloads from their own case management systems. So nobody had to add any new technology. They could just send us the, the data in its raw form. It would go through the data processing pipeline and that would deliver us with our final data set, which we could then um, analyze in line with the 14 themes. So it was a relatively simple approach to what seemed like a fairly complex problem. And today we've been able to map over a thousand separate codes across all of our members down to, as I say, 14 universal themes, but with some secondary tiers in there, we're looking at 52 separate categories that allow us to gain, gain that greater insight. So look, we're getting to the crux of it. Why don't you tell us about your findings, Hannah? What are the headlines you'd like to tell us about that are in the report? I think the report paints a really stark picture and points towards an overall advice trend that is going up and that's not stopping. Um, some, some of our advice themes peaked during the initial waves of COVID and have since stabilised some at higher levels and some are continuing to increase into 2023, which is of course a concern. And we compare the picture over the last two years. So we're looking at 2021 to 2023 compared with 2019 to 2021. So we're capturing at least partially some of the pre-pandemic figures there. 
But what the report shows is that there's a 29% increase in overall advice being provided by our members. And I think it's really important to think about the economic background that local authorities find themselves in and what might be driving some of these queries. So, for example, the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services carried out a survey this spring, which indicated that the level of savings that directors are being required to make is 35% more than the last financial year. So this, this current financial year, local authorities are telling us that they have to make £806 million of savings, and that's up from £597 million last year. There's a lot of information in there, Hannah. So I'm just going to speak back for our listeners. I think what you're saying is that the amount of advice provided by those organisations has increased by 29%. But presumably, it's possible that the demand for advice is even higher than that in that period. And you're, you're describing a backdrop of local authorities really struggling um, mm -hmm. to meet people's social care needs and therefore I think that you're drawing an inference that the, the increase in demand for social care advice is happening against a backdrop of local authorities increasingly struggling to meet people's social care needs. So I think the Association of Directors of Adult Services, 75% of them have highlighted that they are concerned that they may not have enough funding to meet even um, the most basic of statutory needs. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yes, 75% aren't confident about being able to fully offer the minimum. That's the minimum social care support required by law in their own communities. That's right. And I'm right in thinking that there's been an increase in um, requirements for legal advice as well. Is that right? Yes, that's definitely one, one of the, the key themes. So we see the impact of those challenges playing out across several key themes in our report, one of them, you're absolutely right, being the demand for legal advice. And that's specifically in relation to social care. So we've seen a 95% increase in the need for specialist legal advice relating to social care. And this is concerning, um, particularly as we know from law society research that 67% of the population don't have access to a, a community care legal aid provider in their local area. So it, it paints a worrying picture, um, and it, that's that's one of the areas in terms of that demand for legal advice that's not showing any signs of stabilising or even decreasing. That is that is just increasing. Really worrying against a backdrop of, of government data saying that there's been a 77% reduction in the number of cases taken on by legal aid lawyers for um, social care, community care issues. Is yes. there anything else that you want to highlight in this section, Hannah, about your findings? I think some of the key areas that are really concerning, and, and there's more detail in, in the report, but some of the key areas that are showing no signs of decreasing are areas relating to carers and carers calling helplines about concerns. They're not getting the right support or they can't access an assessment. And these are people who are really um, at burnout now. They've, they've been caring for, you know, three or four years and a lot of carers' lives changed at the outset of the pandemic. And so our report sees an 80% increase in the number of, of carers contacting helplines. And as I say, that's a real concern, which we'll continue to monitor into the next report. Other areas that I wanted to highlight related to 
advocacy, so statutory advocacy, people will need support um, who might have substantial difficulty taking part in their own care planning journey. In the previous two years, queries have doubled on, on statutory advocacy. So again, that's not showing any signs of, of slowing down or even decreasing. And that's really important because it relates to the way that people engage with their own care and support and ultimately their well-being. Some really stark data there. Um, and I suppose it's important to highlight that this impacts upon people of working age who are disabled, it impacts on older people and it impacts on carers. So um, across all of those different segments of society, um, with one in five of us being carers and one in five of us being um, disabled, it really is um, data that affects all of us, whether for ourselves or for a loved one. This work feels really important, Hannah, and I know that at Access Social Care we're really fortunate because we've just managed to recruit a new head of data who has a lot of technical expertise. Amit Kohli um, will be working alongside you going forwards, and I suppose I'm really curious to hear more about your ambitions for working with Amit um, and for the project going forwards. Absolutely, we're very pleased to welcome Amit to Access Social Care this year. We're keen to continue expanding our membership, so uh, we welcome more Helplines Advice members. And in the next phase of the project's development, we'll be overlaying different data sources to our findings. So we'll be looking at central government data and um, data from our own chatbot, and we'll be looking at overlaying what we're seeing in those areas with what, what we're seeing through our Helplines members and you can find out more about this and the next phases of the project through joining our webinar on the 19th of October um, and that's available on our on our website but as I say we're hoping to grow the project and to bring new members in and additionally to look at whether we can start understanding some of the related issues such as housing welfare benefits issues that are interconnected with social care need um, and that interplay is really important. We're looking at how we can start understanding um, the, the data that our current members have and future members might have in relation to how that impacts on people with social care needs. Really exciting work. Thank you, Hannah, for coming and talking to me today about this project and huge congratulations for putting together such an excellent report that I know um, many of our listeners will be interested in reading. Thank you. I'd like to give a very warm welcome to our guest today. That's Sarah O'Grady from the Daily Express. Sarah, could you start by telling us a little about your role at the Daily Express? Hello, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation to talk about such an important subject. I write about most issues which, which touch the lives of our readers these are problems surrounding social care, of course, but all kinds of public policy issues. So I'll write about women having children later, for example, and the fact that record numbers of women and mothers are working, the fact that we're all working longer, the workforce alongside the population is ageing. I cover education, childcare, and at the moment, of course, the current cost of living crisis and its impact on family budgets. 
So our listeners have heard that our annual State of the Nation report brings together data from a number of helpline organisations. And this gives us a large data set that allows us to examine trends and share emerging themes in social care advice provision. This year, we've found that the number of inquiries about social care needs assessments has risen. Can you tell me if this concern about needs assessments is something that you've come across in your reporting? Yes, uh, it is a significant and growing concern for older people and their families. Local authorities, um, many of whom are cash-strapped and overloaded, are taking far too long to reach people that need the help, who've asked for their help. And often, you know, sometimes the delays are so long that rules seem to change between appointments. So families are left to catch up, even if they get the first appointment. Um, people turn up, they turn up to the local authority, council offices or wherever. They are then left to catch up because rules have changed. People have explained to them, oh, you need this or you need that, which, you know, three months earlier they didn't need. And that leads to um, more delay. And, you know, there's uh, around 1.6 million over 65s have an unmet social care needs, and that's 36,000 fewer older people are receiving long-term care. And this can be traced back to the fact that these needs assessments are increasingly difficult to get and even complete. Uh, The pattern of people waiting longer and longer takes this kind of toll. And, you know, for example, at the end of March this year, there were 434,000 people waiting for the process to start. And the real worry and the real shame is that when people first approach their local authority, they are mostly not at crisis point. You know, people are very sensible, older people and their families, they're very sensible and they think, this is what I'm struggling with now. Next month, it might be worse. In six months, it's definitely going to be worse. I need to put provision in place now. So they're mostly not at that crisis point. But because of the slowness, the waiting, their situation deteriorates. Of course, then some people find themselves in hospital, for example, perhaps because they've had a fall. But the reason they've had that fall is because the needs assessment was so slow, the occupational therapist, for example, wasn't sent round. Um, you know, their mobility wasn't examined. Uh, equipment wasn't ordered or delivered or fitted. Uh, grab bars, shower chairs, hookers. So, of course, they've fallen and then the ambulance is called and they're taken to hospital. That, of course, is very expensive. You know, the taxpayer pays for this hospital treatment, these hospital stays, and the cost to the taxpayer is a lot more than having that original occupational therapist go around maybe a month or six months earlier. And it has to be said that hospital is not the place that older people want to be in for anything less than very much needed treatment for a serious health issue. You know, hospitals are not generally good places for pensioners. You know, they're often confined to bed, for example, so they lose muscle mass. They often can't rest properly because they're in a shared bed. Um, The food, you know, you know, they don't have a lot of choice about the food. Often it's not the best. 
they can only see their friends and family at certain times. Um, they're, you know, they're the people that they surround themselves with, the, the, the activities that they have enjoyed, all that disappears while they're in hospital. So it's a very, it's very short-sighted not to see people for their needs assessment as soon as possible. Thank you. And really important information there and really showing how um, perhaps making savings or cutting back in social care actually in the long run for the taxpayer isn't the right way to go about things because the cost often escalates if you're paying for health instead of social care. That's, exactly. a, that's a really important point. Exactly. It's, a, it's very much a false economy. You know, it's far cheaper to have someone go around and help um, an older person or a disabled person to uh, wash or shop or, or, or Camille for them. That is far cheaper than having them you know, fall over or perhaps find themselves in hospital because of dehydration, perhaps because they get malnutrition, because they haven't been eating properly. It's far cheaper and easier to do that, to do that proper prior planning than it is for someone to think, oh my gosh, what can I do now? I've got to dial 999, I'm going to wait for paramedics. Paramedics come, then you're in a, uh, an ambulance, you're off to your local hospital. And in fact, my own father-in-law, who's 91 this year, uh, was sent to one hospital just a few weeks ago and, and turned around and sent to a second hospital. Uh, and he was checked there and then turned around and sent home. That was a very worrying, busy, unnecessarily expensive day. You know, very time-consuming. And the doctors and nurses had to deal with him, the paramedics, you know, it's not a very nice situation to be in at all. Mm. So you, you, thank you for sharing that personal story, Sarah. You've, you've spoken quite a lot about older people there, but, but the social care system, as we know, is for working age disabled people, um, and it's also for carers. So unpaid carers often will step in to look after their loved ones. So I know that you've written about the fact that more pensioners are being forced into unpaid carer roles, um, either for their elderly spouse, um, or indeed for a working age disabled person. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that you're seeing when it comes to unpaid care? Well, what we expect of these people, these unpaid carers who take on this role and face these challenges every single day without any kind of formal pay salary, not even you know generous carers allowance benefit, for example, is absolutely astonishing and i'd like to say that it's a hidden scandal and as soon as we draw attention to it measures are going to be put in place and things are going to get done but i have been writing about this for years in the pages of the daily express and the readers will email in and write in in their droves because they either are doing it themselves or they know of someone who is. But nothing seems to happen. It's not a hidden scandal. It's out there. And it is still a scandal that more isn't done to help these people. And I'm thinking 
first of all, what you've just mentioned about older people being forced into these unpaid carer roles, you know, they may have been a carer for their husband or their wife or even their, you know, uh, disabled uh, child for, for a long time, 20 or 30 years perhaps, but that's been through their 30s and 40s and 50s. And then all of a sudden they hit retirement age, their own health starts to suffer, they become more tired, and yet they're still expected to take on the same amount of work, if not more work, that they were doing 20 years earlier for their loved one. And of course, this saves the taxpayer an absolute fortune, you know, billions of pounds, because these people are kept out of hospitals and they kept healthy because of this love and this care that is coming from their perhaps their husband or wife or, or adult child to an elderly parent or you know the parent to the disabled adult child. But again, it, it's ongoing. The numbers are increasing. You know, the lowest number that um, I find myself quoting in my pieces is about six and a half million. Um, that's a due an update because since the pandemic, obviously people have become sick or sicker, many suffering perhaps from long COVID. Others found that COVID uh, aggravated certain health issues. And of course, the people caring for them have become older. And um, I find it very difficult to write about sometimes because these people struggle every day and do such a fabulous job. And for example, take respite care. There isn't enough of it. And one wonders why there isn't enough of it, you know, either on a daily basis to have the person who needs the care, you know, taken from their home to a club, to a social setting, to a hydrotherapy pool where perhaps they can exercise, um, you know, they get out of the house, it gives their um, loved one the chance to rest and relax or see their own friends. Uh, that perhaps they can't do for the rest of the week because of their caring responsibilities. Uh, respite care overnight, you know, having somebody to come into the house and, and just spend the night in the home, which gives the carer the chance of a rock-solid night's sleep without getting up in the middle of the night to, for example, change a catheter or, or change a dressing or just fetch a glass of water. We don't have enough of um, those kind of people. And when it comes to actually, uh, you know, taking people away for a week or even a long weekend, uh, very, very few opportunities to do that. So, you know, for 365 days of the year, these people are together. There's no break. Um, and as we know, even when health is perfect and so on and so forth, it's still sometimes a bit over the top to expect. Um, people to live in each other's pockets but there isn't enough respite care it's not fully funded um, and that's a great shame and speaking of fully funded of course you have the financial pressure faced by carers and their families you know you can qualify for carers allowance if you tick all the right boxes but a carers allowance isn't going to make up for example if that carers had to go from full-time work to part-time work doesn't make up the difference and if the carers had to give up work altogether it certainly doesn't come 
anywhere near closing the gap. And and that's a great shame. The amount of money that, like I said, that they save the taxpayer and they, you know, they save the system. It's also that then not only do they do all this extra work, but they have to penny pinch their way through their lives. I can really hear the passion in your voice there, Sarah. And um, it, it doesn't seem fair, does it? And, and especially in, in this cost of living context that that carers should be going hungry because they're, they're, they're unable to work and because they're not being paid for that caring role that might be taking up um, you know, the equivalent of, of a full-time job or indeed more in some instances. And I always feel really passionately that we know that most carers are women, not all carers, but most carers are women statistically. So it feels like a real feminist issue. And, um, and you know, as I say, it, it, it's really, it is something that isn't right in our society, that we're not valuing carers for that absolutely critical role that they play. Definitely. Uh, you know, a lot of these women, of course, and and the men, because there are lots of men who, who do play a full caring role my own husband is one of them and I I think that with the pressure of raising a family at the same time as taking on board the responsibility for elderly parents or another aging relative very really very very difficult this sandwich generation and of course it is a feminist issue because it is a lot of women who will go out and do their own supermarket shop, right? But they'll also have a second bag there to do the shop for their mum or dad or their aunt or uncle or you know, another family friend. And instead of sitting down with that newspaper with the feet up after she's given the kids their tea, they're jumping in the car and um, rushing off to to see that elderly relative and to do what she can there in that particular hour you know cooking cleaning or just of course being company and huge numbers you know huge numbers the vast majority of these people um carers of both sexes they do what they do with love they don't want to see their elderly parents who took care of them so well as they were growing up they don't want to see them struggling for anything but life you know pressures of everyday life especially if you're raising a family or especially if you're also working just I think must sometimes bear down on people and feel it's such a burden you know it's such a burden to have to deal with several things all the time at once and that's why I do feel that respite care for Thank you, Sarah. So um, we know as a specialist advice provider working in health and social care that advice can really help carers, it can really help working age disabled people, and it can help older people who are interacting with the social care system. So something else that our State of the Nation report tells us is that there's an increased demand for advice in general. So it's clearly something that's concerning an increasing number of people. I'm, I'm curious about what you would say are the social care issues that matter most to your readers? Uh, well, I would say access to social care, of course. And over the years, I've been writing about 
social care. It, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? People like me write about it. Other people talk about it. Um, your next door neighbor has elderly parents, tries to get it. The woman across the street has a disabled daughter, tries to get it. And there's a there's been a groundswell of um, of notification here, a groundswell. Everyone seems to know someone who is struggling with social care. And that's one of the reasons, of course, um, there's been an increased demand for advice. It's a very complicated process. It, it changes from one local authority area to another, from one bit of the UK to another. The system in Scotland is different to the system here in England. And obviously people are trying to make their way through this labyrinth of information and that's where of course um charities and yourselves play this increasingly more important role trying to get the information out there and explain to people what they have to do and when they have to do it and access to social care is a big problem for the vast majority of my readers that i interact with they want to know what they qualify for, how they qualify, how they get it. What is a needs assessment? You know, what's the difference between domiciliary social care and um, residential social care? Going on from that, of course, we have cost of social care, which is a huge worry, huge worry for our readers and um, anyone I would have thought now in their 50s onwards they're thinking or should be thinking, how am I going to afford? How am I going to pay for my own social care if I need caring age? And even though I write about this on a regular basis and and um, chat about it, etc., cetera, uh, people will still be amazed when I say that actually, you know, you could be paying a thousand pounds a week for residential care and double that for nursing care. And they take a step back. They're astounded. You know, these. this is why clear and concise, uncomplicated information about the whole system is so crucial. And I can't not mention NHS continuing healthcare. Uh, that in itself is, um, is a service, a benefit, which people uh, find themselves in increasingly excluded from but very quickly you know there are um, people who have social care needs which are health care needs and in this country if you have health care needs it's the treatment of uh, is funded by the NHS and that includes uh, the payment of um, nursing care and residential care fees and even in-house domiciliary care fees in some situations but that's an incredibly complicated system to navigate yourself through and again local authorities and um, and their in-house um, social care experts constantly tighten the screws there financially and people sometimes will have to apply six or seven times before they are given you know given the go-ahead and rubber stamp that they qualify for this extra financial help 
Thank you, Sarah. That's really interesting to hear about. What I would say to our listeners is if you are somebody that needs social care or if you're a carer and you're looking for advice, you can go to our website on Access Charity dot org dot uk and we have on there a chat bot which will take you through a conversation to get you to the information that you need and there are about 150 different letters in there that you can personalize within the chat bot ready to send off to the public body to hopefully make sure that you get the support that you need and there's information in there about charging about continuing health care about how to get an assessment um Sarah, you have shared extensive knowledge with us today, and I'd like to say a really big thank you. There's so much information in there, and you've really given um, some real insight into what the statistics in our State of the Nation report mean on the ground for people who are experiencing the social care system so I'd like to say a real really big thank you for that but before you go I've got one last question and it's the question that I always ask my guests and that is what one thing do you think could change the state of our nation when it comes to social care this is the hardest question no wonder you leave it until the last I think that (laughs) it would take more than one thing so in very short order Number one, more joined up thinking, putting social care in the Department of Health and changing it to the Department of Health and Social Care was a strong signal, but much more needs to be done. And one of the most infuriating uh, things about communication and joined up thinking is that we are living in a digital age and we know it takes seconds to send an email and no wonder that older people and their families are in increasingly frustrated finding it difficult to understand how much information or requests are lost or forgotten or subject to huge delays because the GP doesn't know the local social care agencies the physiotherapists don't know the district nurses there are any left in their area the um, local social care agencies don't liaise with the podiatry services and of course, the hearing aid services with anybody, because uh, much of that hearing aid services are now private. So more joined up thinking, more communication. Number two, social care cap on costs. It's simply unfair, very unfair to accept, to expect people to sell their family homes to fund their own care, a system that they have paid into all their lives they bought their homes uh, with salaries that were already taxed national insurance was also taken out i think that in this day and age the vast majority of people understand that if they want a rolls royce service there are certain things that they will have to pay for Um, for example hearing aids or podiatry services you know that no longer very easy to get on the NHS. But I think that to force people into penury, forcing them to sell their family home uh, to pay these catastrophic care costs is un- just is unfair and um, shouldn't be done. There's definitely a better system out there. And the system of a social care cap, um, first mentioned about 12 years ago by Sir Andrew Dillnott, 
is right there, you know, right there. It's it, all the work has been done and it just needs to be accepted as policy and moved forward. And one final thing, this is something that doesn't often come up, which is why I'm flying the flag now. It's some um, consumer protection for those people, older people and disabled people uh, in care homes and at home who um, use private care companies, for example, in their care homes, both residential and um, nursing homes, they need far more consumer protection. They need proper contracts detailing exactly what they're entitled to or are paying for. They need proper financial statements. I mean, for example, if you're living in a care home, I think you should know how much the energy bill or the food costs are, and then a breakdown of how much of your fee is spent on those kind of items. And finally, and very importantly, secure tenancies with protection against forced evictions, so-called forced evictions. You know, a care home, you know, the clue is in the name, it is a home. And I don't think that uh, people should be expelled from those homes uh, without very, very clear reasons. And certainly after a long period of time um, working with families and other agencies to perhaps solve any issues that there might be. So I do think that overall more consumer protection is very much needed for these people. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. There's a really clear mandate there for um, let's hope that the, the decision makers are listening. So um, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all of your knowledge and insight. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you very much for tuning into this month's episode of the State of Our Nation podcast. This has been an overview of some of the findings from this year's State of the Nation report. But for the whole picture, you can download the report from our website. If you're listening to this soon after the episode has gone live, then you're ahead of the curve and can sign up to receive the report by email when it's launched. If you're listening later, the report will already be available to download on our website. Either way, if you head to accesscharity.org.uk forward slash state of the nation, you will find out what you need. This is the last episode of the season, so we'll be having a break before coming back to you next year with season two. We've had a brilliant first season of the podcast covering topics, including the value of the social care workforce, legal aid and community care, inequalities in health and social care, chatbot technology and more. Go back and listen if you haven't already. We've had some great conversations with experts, leaders and change makers in the social care sector. So they're definitely worth a listen. If you want to be the first to know when season two launches, make sure you subscribe to our podcast through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, we'd really appreciate it if you could spare a few minutes to leave us a positive review and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues in the sector to help us to continue doing what we do. A big thank you to everyone who has joined us for the podcast this season and shared their expertise. And thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll see you in season two.